Hi, Raymond. It's Hello, a Marcus. Pleasure to see you. I remember the very first time I saw, uh, saw you was in Chicago at Reggie's, I think. Yes, it was Reggie's. That's when I first met you and Tony and Pat of the Stickman. And I also I gave a crazy introduction to your band, uh, citing uh, a Mel Brooks quote, quote, if you remember that. <laughs> I remember. I don't remember the quote, though. <laughs> Uh, it was this sort of joke about salt, uh, that, and then I, I sort of, I, I, I uh, pigeonholed it into uh, into a music analogy. So <laughs> it kind of worked. I got a big laugh, and Tony kind of went, "I didn't know where you were going with that, but uh, I guess it worked." <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you you know you you really I don't know how to say this like somehow your personal personality spoke to me somehow immediately. Oh, well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that that's really <laughs> nice to hear and uh then but, but I, I didn't know anything about you and still i know very little about you but i know that you are a big music fan and you are uh, a maker of stories and you write them down yes i do yeah i've done a lot of stuff you know but also you know we have that mutual friend in leonardo Uh, yes. I've known Leonardo for for many years now, um, and you know when he lived in New York. When I I, I often go to New York because I used to live in New York, mm -hmm. um, and I would always get together together with him and and we'd hang out. So, how, how did you meet Leonardo? Through music, um, you know when Moon June was really uh, kind of becoming a thing, uh, I would be buying cds from him and stuff and eventually uh for a while i was reviewing cds for progression magazine do you know progression magazine yeah. uh this was a while back but uh so he would send me cds that he'd like me to review you know and so we got friendly that way and i you know i did review cds for several years i finally stopped doing that but um but that's how really kind of how we got to know each other And then, you know, he would come into town with a band every now and then, and I'd see him. You know, he there was a band in Chicago called Marbin. Do you know Marbin? Yeah. That band? yeah. Um, he was sort of releasing their stuff at the beginning, you know, and I, I would go see them. I like them a lot. I think they're a great band. Um, so, you know, we'd hang out there, and and uh, he'd come with, let's see, who else did he come with? Um, can't remember. Oh, um, um I, I met him with Dewa, Dewa Bijani. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Came to town once. Um, so, you know, there's yeah. that. Yes, yes. Hey, so I have, have an interesting question to kind of like start off the discussion, let's say, our conversation. Okay. Uh, so it occurred to me when I was thinking about like, you know, what you do as a writer. And I then I realized that a lot of people call writers writers, but... There is, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's like the other side of the coin is actually the the having the idea or having the story, having sort of like an idea for a story. So, so I guess that there are people who are storytellers that don't know how to write, and there are writers who don't have good stories. Right? Is that true? What you say? Well, I'm, yeah, I suppose there is. I mean, you know, I'm I mostly write fiction. I mean, there's all kinds of writers. Writers write can write nonfiction. Writers can be guys who write 
you know, copy for ads, you know, that's a writer. Uh, there's screenwriters, there's playwrights, there's, um, you know, new uh, journalists, mm -hmm. um, uh, there's lyricists. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so all that's writing, really. Uh, I mean, for 10 years or so, I wrote computer games. Before mm -hmm. I became a novelist, um, uh, I, I had a career writing and designing computer games. And they were story-based games, so it was all fiction. It was like telling a story, but in the in in a very interactive kind of way with lots of choices and paths which means your script was like the size of a big phone book you know um, that's that's fascinating like one of the ways that i got into computers really and like also into programming myself was uh via text adventure games in the mid that's how i started that's how i started yeah. Info infocom i remember infocom but like what my first exposure was uh magnetic scrolls do you remember that I remember the I remember the game. I don't think I ever played it, but I remember it. Yeah, it was uh, it was fascinating to me. Actually, that's how I learned English. Believe uh -huh. it or not, like playing playing a text adventure game in English. <laughs> right. Well, that's how I started with it. You know, with Zork and uh, all yes, those great in Infocom games. And then I actually my first three games that I designed and wrote was in the eighties, uh, mid eighties. You know, just when computers were you know, PCs were coming into the home, you know, the Apple IIc and Commodore and things like that. And so these were very primitive text adventure games. And one of them was a Stephen King adaptation. And then two of them were James Bond games. Uh, so oh. those, yeah. Already and, in the 80s, you were associated with James Bond then. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then that, you know, I was in going into the 90s. I also uh, worked, you know, then you started getting graphics and computers started getting more, uh, sophisticated and the game started getting more sophisticated so i, I was in the business through uh, until 1997 and mm -hmm. i worked with some big companies or origin systems and microprose viacom so yeah that was fun but then then i became a novelist and i turned my back on it and left it behind <laughs> so so uh, please please um give me some background how did you I mean, start like getting interested in in writing, and then how did you end up with the computer games? Then, right. Well, I I grew up in a small West Texas town, uh, and uh, I'm a kid of the '50s. Uh, grew up in the '60s, and um, I should probably mention this right off the bat. But when I was nine years old, I saw Goldfinger on the big big screen. You know, and uh, that pretty much changed my life um and you know just a few months later uh the double bill of dr no and from russia with love came out so i saw those first three sean connery bond films on the big screen very early and they you know they they forged an impression on me <laughs> from then on you know um but uh i had my sights set on you know some kind of performing arts uh, I was a musician already at a young age. I'm a piano player. I didn't know if you knew that. Um, and uh, I started playing the piano at a young age, but also I was into acting and that kind of thing. And I, I went into the drama department when I was in high school. And I thought I was going to be an actor. But when I went to college, uh, I changed my major from acting to directing. And I got a degree in directing stage plays. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was composing music. I was working with playwrights. 
uh, where they would write a book and lyrics and I would put the lyrics to music. Mm-hmm. And there was one musical that I wrote with a playwright um, that occupied six years of my life. Uh, there were six productions all around the country and three in New York and one off Broadway production. And I, I thought that was going to be, you know, that was my platform to, to fame and success. But like, a lot of things. It didn't happen that way, <laughs> but it was a great experience, and it was a great it was a great musical for those who saw it. It was called "The Resurrection of Jackie Kramer." Um, but you know, after college, I I did go to uh, New York uh, to, to to work in theater. So I and I did spend several years directing plays and composing music and uh, working off off Broadway, off 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 way off Broadway, and. Um, then there came a moment in the early 80s when um, some friends of mine and I were sitting around a table and the question came up, if you had to write a book, what would you write? And we all went around and gave an answer and I thought about it and I said, well, I think I would write a history book about James Bond because there isn't one. I mean, there have been biographies of Ian Fleming. And there had been a couple of books on the movies and maybe a book or two on the novels, but they were all out of print. But there was not one single tome that contained everything, you know, a biography of Fleming, a history of the phenomenon and analyses and critiques of all the novels and all the movies, you know, all in one big giant book. And I wanted that book. I wanted that book on my shelf, you know, and everybody kind of went, you know, you should just do that. Why don't you write it? Because you know a lot about James Bond. Everybody knew I liked, I was a Bond fan. And so I thought about it and I talked to a friend of mine who had written a book. It was a joke book, but I said, how'd you do that? You know, how'd you get it published? And he introduced me to an editor in New York and I sort of told her my idea of what I wanted to do. And she said, well, that's a good idea. You need a proposal. She sort of gave me the the instructions of how to do a proposal. I went home and spent a few days writing the proposal, gave it to her, and I got a contract to write the book overnight. (laughs) And it was like, oh, suddenly I was a writer. (laughs) You know, I had no I had no intention of becoming a writer. Uh, It just kind of happened because it was it was like a labor of love. I wanted to do this book. And uh, so. I set about doing the book and set about researching it. And it. Well, it took me three years to do this book. I went to England and I met members of Ian Fleming's family and his colleagues and his business people, especially uh, the man who was his literary agent, uh, ran the the publishing company, the literary side of, of James Bond. There are two entities that control James Bond. There's the literary side, which is Ian Fleming's family. And the film side, which is the Albert R. Broccoli family and that gang. And they're like kind of like feuding cousins, <laughs> but uh, they work together. And uh, But the film people have all the film rights and any kind of visual rights and computer game rights and things like comic book rights and things like, well, not the comic books, but uh, they used to have comic books, but now it's on the literary side. And the literary side just does the novels and, and things like that. So um, anyway, I wrote this book. It came out in 1984. It's called The James Bond Bedside Companion. And it got nominated for an Edgar Allan Poe Award for critical 
biographical work and the Fleming people liked it, seemed to like it. And um, during this period of time, a man named John Gardner was writing the Bond novels. After Fleming's death, um, uh, the, the estate would periodically hire other authors to continue the books. And Kingsley Amos was one, and then John Gardner was doing it at this time. So I wrote this book, and uh, immediately um, I had I'd, I'd gotten a, a, an agent out of it. And the agent called me just, I think, a month after the book was published. And he said, I, uh, do you like games? Do you, do you have a computer? And I went, um, no, I don't have a computer yet. I, but I do like games, you know, I, I play games. I, you know, I've been, I'd been playing, you know, role-playing games, you know, like the, there was a James Bond role-playing game, uh, like Dungeons and Dragons, pencil and paper game. Um, and I was into that and I knew the, the guys who created it. And um, they had actually talked to me about uh, writing an adventure module for that. And so I was thinking of doing that, but the, my agent said, well, there's this, this company, that uh, is doing computer games and they're looking for a writer and they have a license to do a couple of James Bond titles. And I thought of you and I went, Oh yeah, I'll talk to them. So they showed me Zork and the Infocom stuff. Uh, and they said, we're doing something like this. It's like, it's our own version of text adventures. And we have a Stephen King title and these two bond titles. And I said, yes, I want to do it. I want to do it. And so um, I got a Apple IIc and started playing the Infocom games just to get the hang of how to do it. And, you know, as far as the writing and how they're structured and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and so I got the job and that kind of set me on a completely different path that I never thought I'd be on again. Uh, and so for the next, you know, 10 years, I, I kind of jumped around different companies uh, doing this. So um, what is the workflow like when you're writing a computer game like that? Do you start from the big picture and then you go into details or like what is the what's the well in those those early text adventures? It was it was just me and a pro couple of programmers and the producer. You know, there was no artists involved or anything or sound. So it was all very primitive. And yeah, it was all on me to decide what the story was and what the structure was. Um, once we got into the 90s and, you know, the teams creating a computer game was it was almost like making a movie. You'd have, you know, a couple of producers, you'd have several artists, you'd have more than one writer. You might have a head writer, which I usually was. Uh, and then two or three writers under you, um, and then uh, artists and sound and music, and it was it was a big product. You know, the Origin System was the the first big company I worked for, and we did Ultima Seven. I did Ultima Seven, The Black Gate, um, was one of mine. And uh, you know, you do you do start like just like a movie would start. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you got to pitch it to the company. You got to make sure it gets approved and green light and you get a big budget and you figure out where the budget is going to go to and how many, you know, team members you need and all that stuff. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a big involved process, but the writing part is like any other writing project. Um, and that gets me into 
the novel writing, which I pretty much approach the same way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the actual, let's say the story part, the storytelling part that let's say could potentially be separated from the writing. You could write the same story in different ways and different mm -hmm. styles, different voices, right? Mm -hmm. um, is the story part something that is just sort of comes naturally to you? Or is that sort of like an intuitive thing for you to do? Or do you sit down and how, how, how do you inspire yourself creatively to do something like that? Well, coming up with a story is, is, I wouldn't say it's easy. Um, and, but for me, the way I tell a story is just intuitive. Uh, coming up with the story is hard, but telling the story is easy. Um, it's, I mean, usually when I'm creating the story, I'm also creating how I'm going to tell it. Mm -hmm. You know, whether, whether it's in first person, like I'm talking novels now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and my most recent novel, uh, it's called the mad, mad murders of Marigold way. Uh, I decided to have it in first person and uh, as told by an omniscient narrator who's overlooked kind of like the stage manager in our town. Uh, and then he would sort of comment on the action and then it would go into the action and that would be in third person. Uh, this was kind of a, a unique way of, to, of writing a novel. Uh, it was different for me, but that's the way I envisioned it. And it was kind of that way from the beginning. So it's so I, I, all my novels were that way. So it's like the the form and the content, let's say. So the form and the story, they sort of like develop hand in hand somehow. Yes, for me it does. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you could probably talk to another writer and they'd say something very different, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was doing the computer games, yeah, I would come up with a storyline um, and then we'd figure out, you know, how's, how, are we, how are we going to do it because it involved artists and and programmers and you know how you know programmers have to get involved because they have to be able to to do what you're envisioning you know yeah. you have some kind of big giant set piece in a story you know they they have to go well gee can we program that you know can we make it work <laughs> you know it's not like taking a camera and filming something or doing it you know today with cgi or uh you know, that kind of stuff. Back in the early 90s, it was still, you know, in its infancy. You know, like with, with for me, any any story um, sort of creates, literally creates a new world that as a reader, you kind of like become part of the world or you can sort of like see the world in a way, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and I find that fascinating, like as, as opposed to um, somebody like me who composes music, where it's not really there's i don't necessarily have to let people into that world you know what i mean like so i don't have to, i don't have to write things i don't have locations in mind i don't have like certain scenes or as you say even even i don't know if it's first person or third person that doesn't doesn't really apply to music at all so that's why i am so curious about mm -hmm. About how the process is for you because you're you're literally sort of like creating a, a world that people can 
and will enter as they consume the words mm-hmm. that you've written. And I, I, that's that's just a, uh, for me, it's fascinating because there's a lot of sort of, <laughs> for lack of a better term, like penetration happening. Yeah, yeah. People kind yeah. of like. Well, you know, my my approach to writing is very different from my approach to composing because I'm a composer too. I've composed yeah. a lot of music. Uh, that's more just you know, music is more from from here, mm-hmm. where writing is more from here. I think is the only way <laughs> I can maybe make an analogy. But although you know, sometimes a lot of the writing is from the heart as well. You know, so. Um, I don't know. It's it's all a mystery. <laughs> it's a mystery, right? I, but I think I think it for for us, you know, it kind of makes sense to talk about these things. Yeah. Because, like we can sort of in conversations with people. Like I have a lot of aha moments about myself. Uh huh. Like how how you know you don't even need to ask me, Marcus. How do you do that? When I when you tell me how you come up with your storyline, I sort of like you know start thinking and what does it what how does it work for me and uh it's just i'm just realizing that at least from my perspective i'm not actually creating stories or like the pieces of music that i make for me they are it's just it's just a it's just a sort of like a series of snapshots you could say but the see the the it's not that one the image that follows the other really has to continue the story it can be right anything but, but i music can be uh, can be a story i mean music can be it, it's a different kind of story um i mean you know you get pictures in your head when you hear music i think you know the listener does yes yeah so um and those pictures might tell a story yeah exactly and that's you know that's the funny thing that I don't have pictures in my head. It's like when I tell this to people, some people don't believe me, but it's as a matter of fact, it's true. Like I don't ever get pictures in my head. Right. And it's a really, really a fascinating uh, discovery that I only made like five years ago that for other people, it's very different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I was, when I'm composing, I don't think I have pictures in my head unless I'm composing to a, the lyrics of like a you know a musical or play that somebody else have written lyrics for then maybe i have pictures in my head but if i'm just composing instrumental pieces on the piano it it just comes the melody just comes out or whatever uh but then people who hear it might have pictures in their head so yeah yeah yeah, i agree But, but you know when it comes to novel writing uh in our business we say that there are two kinds of writers. There are there are plotters, and there are pantsers. And the pantsers that is, they write by the seat of their pants. <laughs> uh, plotters and pantsers. And plotters, you know, kind of plan the story ahead of before they start writing. It's like you know they do an outline, or you know uh, a, a detailed synopsis, or you know they know how it's going to end. They know what they're going to go f- toward. Uh, pantsers just sit down and start writing you know stephen king is a pantser and he's a really good pantser uh lee child i think the guy that did the reacher books he he's a pantser and i admire pantsers i think you know the way they do that that's i i could never do that uh i'm a plotter mm-hmm. um i have to plan it out i almost look at 
you know, writing a novel is like building a novel. Uh, you have to have blueprints. Uh, you wouldn't build a building without blueprints, you know. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, you have to have a plan. Um, and I think this was drilled into me in my theater days because as a director, I had this great, great directing professor who wrote a textbook that was used all over the country for directing. And he really drilled us into preparation. How you've got to be prepared before you have that first rehearsal. And you have to write out a preparation on a play that you're going to direct. And analyze every beat of the play and analyze the characters and the subtext. And, uh, and it was a very involved thing that we had to do. Uh, and that, and then, you know, the play inside and out before you enter that rehearsal hall, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I felt the same way. I feel the same way about writing a novel. I, I want to know who these characters are, what I'm doing, what he, and my outline is really a prose treatment broken out by block paragraphs, and each paragraph represents a chapter. And I just basically figure out what happens in that chapter that advances the story, that advances the plot. Um, and I spend a lot of time on this 20-page outline, um, maybe two months, mm -hmm. and really work out all the twists and turns and the, the red herrings and the you know, the twists, uh, and I get it to where I like it and want it. Then I, you know, I start writing. I may, I may travel to research when I did the bond books. Um, I traveled to all the locations all over the world <laughs> and basically walked in bonds footsteps. You know, I had my outline and then I would, okay, bond goes here. So I got to go there and see stuff and so i'd be able to describe it and you know get this the sensual feelings of of another country and food and hotels and stuff like that. I, I i refuse to jump out of an airplane without a parachute but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know um so, so i did, yeah, I did that with all my original books too um of course you know a lot of a lot of my original books take place in places where I've lived, like Texas, New York, Chicago. <laughs> I have some in L.A. because I spent a lot of time in L.A. Um, but that's just, you know. So for the, for the Bond locations, would you um, walk around and take notes? Yes. Take yeah. notes, take pictures, interview people. Uh, for example, um, my first Bond novel, uh, Zero Minus Ten, uh, I knew it would be published in 1997. So I had to come up with a storyline. And in 1997, Britain was handing Hong Kong back to China. And I thought, oh, that might be a good milieu for a Bond story, some kind of intrigue about the handover. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the Fleming people ha wanted me to do an outline first for them to green light it. So... I did do an outline, a storyline, um, and they did greenlight it. And then I went to Hong Kong and uh, did the research. But, for example, I needed to know, uh, I needed to have a triad ceremony <laughs> as, a, as a scene. Mm -hmm. And triad ceremonies are completely off limits to anyone ca Caucasian, you know, or anyone that's not Chinese. Um, and so I went to the Hong Kong police. This is while I was still British, by the way. 
Um, and I got to meet with their triad specialists, their detectives who work the triad. And they showed me, you know, hidden stuff of triad ceremonies and, you know, a script of what it was and things like that. And I said, well, can I use this without, you know, getting in trouble? And they said, go ahead. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I did, you know, things like that. Um, there's the Hong Kong and Shanghai bank building. And when I saw the, the bank building, it's a in, really impressive building and skyscraper, skyscraper. And when I saw it, I said, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a chase all through that building, you know, and end up on top where all these uh, ornate things are. Uh, and and uh, so I wrote to them and said, you know, I want to, can I tour your building? Because I'm writing a James Bond novel and I'm going to have a chase scene in your building. <laughs> and, you know, the name James Bond opens a lot of doors. You know, if, if it wasn't James Bond associated, if I, if I'd just been anybody saying, Hey, can I tour your building so I could write a chase scene, a gun battle in your, in your building, they would have, you know, called the police or something, you know, but James Bond, Oh, come on in. <laughs> You know, <laughs> so I got to do that, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's the kind of research I did. Um, and of course, I would stay in all the hotel, you know, the Bond books were famous. The Fleming Bond books were famous in describing a travelogue kind of thing for Bond as he went to all these places. Uh, they would he would describe the hotels he'd stay in and the food he ate and stuff like that. So that was expected. That's part of a Bond novel. So I would stay in these hotels, you know, I would write and say, I'm writing a Bond novel. Can you give me a couple of nights? And usually they would. Usually they'd give me a couple of nights free in this really fancy hotel, you know, that I probably couldn't afford. Uh, uh, so that was that was that was the perk of being a Bond author. <laughs> it was traveling the world and meeting a lot of cool people. So, yeah, that's that's so cool, Raymond incredibly cool and and <laughs> isn't it amazing how strong the impression of watching that first bond movie was on you and how it shaped your whole life it did i know it, it, who would have thought at the time you know this kid from odessa texas mm -hmm. um i call it odessalation um <laughs> You know, if they'd said, you know, well, one day you're going to be writing James Bond novels, uh, you know, I would, I would have thought they were mad. So, yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't really believe in what people call the law of attraction, but stories like yours, they sort of like, kind of point in that direction. Yeah. Right. You know? I guess you know, I, <laughs> you know, I was also very lucky. I mean, I, I did write that that book in the 80s that um, that made an impact on the Bond world. Uh, it's kind of looked at as a Bond Bible. There's been many more since, you know, more updated books and things like that. But at the time, that was kind of a first of its kind. And it had established me as this sort of Bond expert, whatever that is. And I would start getting involved with Bond fan club stuff. And, um, and I, I you know, and then I was very friendly with the Fleming estate by then, and I would do little odd jobs for them, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and, but, you know, John Gardner was writing at the time. So, but when 
finally in 19 late 1995 i got the call from from the the man who was the head and he said john gardner's decided to uh hang up the hat he doesn't want to do anymore and we were wondering if you'd like to give it a shot <laughs> it's like whoa i was also the first american to do it so that was also a were, were, you, were you friends with John Gardner? Did, have you ever met? Yeah, him? yeah, I knew, I knew John, and uh, I had interviewed him for the beds, my book, the Bedside Companion, and we we've been together. In fact, when my book was published, the Bedside Companion, in 1984, uh, he had a Bond novel published at the same time, and so we both had a book signing at the mysterious bookshop in New York City uh, together. You know, uh, so and that meant a lot to me because here I am signing books with a Bond author, you know, and uh, <laughs> so that was that was cool. Yeah. And and so that must have felt like a an opportunity, but also a big challenge to then write a, no a Bond novel. Oh, uh, my God. Well, you know, I had written a novel before, but it was the kind you throw into a drawer and never look at it again. You know the per, the the proverbial first novel, uh, but I had been writing a lot of fiction in the computer games. You know, I had been honing my fiction writing doing that. Mm -hmm. And the people at the Fleming Estate, uh, the guy, um, his name is Peter, Peter, who was Fleming's agent and and the boss, he knew that I uh, was writing all this fiction, and he actually read that first novel that I threw in the drawer, and he made some critiques, but. You know, he didn't think it was terrible, but probably not publishable. But he knew I could write and finish a book. Mm -hmm. But he also knew that I knew the Bond universe inside and out. Mm -hmm. And that was important to him. And so he wanted to give me a chance. You know, if it didn't work out, then it didn't work out. But uh, I kind of had to audition. I, I had to write the outline uh, first on spec. Uh, and uh, it had to be approved by not only the Fleming people, but the British publisher and the American publisher. And once that was approved, I had to write the first four chapters so they could see that I could actually write. Um, and that got approved, same approval process and that happened. So then I got the contract and uh, yeah, it was scary. Um, this would be my first published novel and it's a James Bond novel published all over the world in different languages. <laughs> Nobody gets that. That it, it was like my my entry into the publishing world is so unique and unorthodox that nobody else has a story like that. I don't think, uh, and I I don't take it for granted at all. Uh, I I perfectly acknowledge that this was unique and um, I was lucky. Yeah, I'm I'm a sensitive guy. Like this gives me goosebumps, you know, hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wonderful and so how, how many uh books did you write i i wrote six or, six james bond novels six original ones but i also did three movie novelizations uh the film people uh they had gotten to where they were creating their own original stories especially starting in the Bro pierce brosnan years mm -hmm. um and that's when i was writing uh so um they would give me the screenplay of their movie and I would turn it into a book. So I did Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough and Die Another Day. John Gardner had done Goldeneye and then he quit after that. Um, so I did the last three of the Brosnan movies. 
So that means that you get the script or the outline of the film script and then yeah i got the film script they would give me the film script and then i had to flesh it out into a novel and you know they were still filming the movie at the time because i had to have the book finished six months before the movie came out so that the publishers would have time to put it together and publish it at the same time the movie came out so i had a much shorter window to write these novelizations than i did to write an original novel i had a whole year to do my original novel uh, the original novels, but about six weeks to do the novelization. Wow. Wow. That's, <laughs> yeah. a, lot of, that's a lot of pressure, right? Yes, it was. It was. <laughs> and not only that, they were faxing me new pages of the script every day. <laughs> and and so, so what, what kind of method did you apply there? Did, that was very different. Well, I, I considered the script my outline. You know, I didn't have to write an outline for that. The script was the outline. So basically you follow the script, but you just kind of flesh it out more. Because if you put into prose everything that's in a screenplay, you're about 30,000 words too short for mm -hmm. a novel. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you had to embellish more. You had to be more descriptive. You know, I had to, uh, uh, you know, I kind of had to keep the dialogue the same, but I could add more dialogue. And in some cases, you know, they allowed me to add a scene of my own invention or two. Uh, I don't know if you remember Tomorrow Never Dies. That's the one with Michelle Yeoh in it and uh, Jonathan yeah. Price. Um, I added a, an early scene with her character uh, explaining her origin and how she got to be in Germany, in Hamburg, where she meets Bond at the same time. She's on the trail of the bad guy, too. You know, we find that out in the movie. So I gave her a backstory of why she's doing that, you know, that wasn't in the movie. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, to, to me, it sounds like a really um, difficult effort to do that because you, you have not seen the film, right? No. So like if you are making it, if you're describing something, you you sort of like have to make sure it has some resemblance of what is going to be shown in right. the film. Well, without I, actually I, well I, did go, I did go to England to Pinewood Studios and I'd meet with the uh, production designer mm -hmm. and see like what the sets look like and stuff. And, and in one case, in world is not enough. I got to walk around the sets, you know, some of the sets. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there was a thing in, um, um, which was it, which movie was it? Oh, it was, it was uh, tomorrow never dies. It had, they had this torpedo thing that kind of had drills on it and they would shoot the torpedo at the enemy ship and it would drill into the other ship and go inside and blow up. And I, reading that in a script i was going what does this look like i can't imagine what it looked like you know uh so i had to see pictures of it and and, and all that mm -hmm. wow yeah. so you know i did that for seven years um and then um i started doing my own stuff and every now and then i would i would do other tie-in work what we call tie-in work where you get hired by a, a franchise of some sort to write a novelization or a novel based on their property for uh you've heard of tom clancy's splinter cell that's yeah. a very popular video game uh i did two books based on that i did two books of metal gear solid mm -hmm. um there's a game called hitman i did a hitman novel <laughs> you know so you know th this kind of stuff is good bread and butter work you know it, it pays well um but then, you know, in, 
they, I would slip those in between my original novels, um, which, you know, are very personal, more personal. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I have great feeling for, I did a series called the black stiletto. Um, it's five books. It's really a serial. Uh, it's five books that tell one story, uh, one big arc of a story, but it's five different books. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's my magnum opus. That's that, you know, and my James Bond work, of course, but um, the black stiletto was it. And it, it's, it's, it's optioned, you know, it's been optioned for many years, <laughs> but it came close to being a TV series uh, around two, 2015, 2016. Um, so did, did you have the, uh, the outline for all five books when you started? What I did with that one, um, I created the first book and I I created kind of how it, I wanted the story to end. I knew how it would end. In other words, I, I kind of knew book number one and book number five, mm-hmm. but I didn't know book number two and three and four. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of created those as we came. But I, I knew I was working toward what's going to happen in, in book five, the big climax. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of like you know if you you look at the Harry Potter books you know that's a seven book arc and each book is separate has its own separate storyline but it's all building toward what's going to happen in that final book and um, so that's how I looked at it you know mm-hmm. instead of a seven seven uh, part book series it's it was only five but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was fun. That that was a great experience. That took me, you know, that was a six-year project. So, uh, if that's okay, let's let's talk a little bit more about Bond because I, I'm just a regular guy who's seen, I guess, most of the the movies. Yeah, uh, I never read uh, a novel by James Bond. Okay, even though I'm, I would like to. Uh, I have to admit. Um, so, what what really makes what is sort of like the 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 thread really that kind of like goes through the whole storyline of how the whole storyline developed let's say so saying like from the 60s when was the first film released in the 60s early 60s 19, yeah 1962 was dr no the first film okay uh, so but the first not the first novel by ian fleming was uh, published 70 years ago um in 1953 This year is the 70th anniversary of James Bond. Wow. So, so you know, like technology changed, uh, society changed so much. So, but what is it like in your view that makes not a Bond story, but even just the character or the characters? Well, the, the character has gone, I mean, when, if you've just seen the movies, the, the, the film Bond is very different from the literary Bond. Okay. Uh, the literary Bond is much more serious. Uh, he's not the sophisticated guy that knows all the wines and the foods and has a, a, a one-liner joke, you know, all the time and betting all these women and stuff like that. That's the movie's Bond. Okay. Um, I mean, there's elements of the literary Bond in Connery and... Lazenby and even more, but I think you know of all the of all the actors who played Bond. I think Timothy Dalton 
portrayed him the most accurately to the literary character. He was very serious. You hardly ever heard him crack a joke. He took everything very serious. He was very grim. He's very, and and Daniel Craig actually played that played it that way mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah. Very edgy, very edgy. Yeah. Um, so that's a lot like what the character in Fleming's novels is. It's very very 1950s pulp. Um, you know, kind of taking this cue from Raymond Chandler, but also you know, fantasy stuff like Sax Romer, Fu Manchu stuff. <laughs> kind of a blend of that kind of fantasy mystery with hard-boiled, you know, Raymond Chandler. That was kind of Fleming and, with, and British at the same time. So, um, and Bond in the 50s, the books, was very patriotic. It was kind of a, it was Fleming's way of saying, you know, you know at that time, Britain was kind of, falling down in power, worldwide power. You know, it it had become America and and the Soviet Union as being the big powers, Uh, whereas the British Empire used to be, you know, the big top dog. Um, So in in many ways, the Bond books were a way of bringing Britain back on top, uh, having this character that fought for king and country, queen and country, and... uh, um, you know, bested his American allies. And, you know, Felix Leiter was a CIA pal who appears in a lot of the, the novels as well as the movies. Um, but he's he was always second banana, you know. And uh, so um, the books are much more realistic. They're much more, um, you know, there are he does have gadgets in them, but not like they are in the films. Mm-hmm. Um, there was uh, an Aston Martin but it's not tricked out like the movie one has a couple of things. I think it has the homing signal thing. Um, but it doesn't have, you know, machine guns and stuff like that, or an ejector seat doesn't have that. Um, but uh, so when, when the film started being made, the producers realized that in order to sell this character in 1962, they had to make him more, attractive to audiences and they gave him it so they gave there is a sense of humor in fleming's books but it comes in the writing it comes from the author uh, but not the bond character in the movies they realized they had to give the bond character a sense of humor and so bond is very you know flippant when it comes to you know but he's also i mean if you see dr no that first film he's still a killer you know he kills that guy in cold blood uh, shoots him in the back, and that was shocking in 1962. Um, and you know they were they were sexy, they were violent, and it, I think it was kind of pretty much the first time we really had what we call an anti-hero on screen. Uh, you know, Bogart may have played a couple of anti-heroes, but this was a now something very different. Uh, this was a guy who was he was a good guy, but. He was kind of bad too. He had vices. He smoked, he drank, and he slept with women all the time, and all this stuff. (laughs) And he had a license to kill. Um, So it, you know, it was new. And of course, the '60s was just the decade when so much changed. um, You know, with music and everything. And by the way, 
the day that Dr. No was released was October 5th, 1962. You know what was also released that very same day? The single Love Me Do. Oh. <laughs> yeah. By the Beatles. Yeah. And so, you know, if you look at the decade of the 60s, the Beatles and Bond were kind of on a parallel rise mm-hmm. to... You know, you had Beatlemania and you had Bond mania. You know, 1965 was the peaks of both of them, you know, a lot of that. Um, and then, you know, Bond also influenced Hollywood and uh, with other things like, you know, you had TV shows coming out like The Man from Uncle and I Spy and The Avengers and Get Smart and movies like the Flint movies, Our Man Flint and the Matt Helm movies, the Silencers and stuff like that. You know, the 60s, you know, it was spy crazy. We went spy crazy. Uh, and it was in fat, you'd open fashion magazines and the ads were like of spies, you know, with women and stuff. Uh, <laughs> You know, so, you know, Bond was like the Star Wars of the 1960s. It really was. It was the pop culture movie phenomenon. So, and if you weren't around, you know, in the 60s to see that, um, you really can't appreciate how big it was then. And that's why we're still talking about it now, because it, it lasted. The producers of the filmmakers, they had quality control and they just kept it going with uh, and they changed it with the times too the 70s bonds films are very very different from the 60s bonds films because you know they got roger moore in they became more comedy uh, comedy comedy thrillers or action comedies i'd put it that way Mm -hmm. you know the 60s were action thrillers the 70s were action comedies up through like the mid 80s and then once we got timothy dalton we got action thrillers again uh, the Brosnans, I describe those as the video game uh, Bond movies because <laughs> they feel like video games. Uh, then we got action thrillers again with the Daniel Craig um, movies. So they've changed with the times. Each each Bond actor kind of reflects the decade with when you know that they were in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like my, I have to say that because people talk about the the favorite Bond actor, you know. Yeah, and for me that would be Daniel Craig. I'm just. Oh yeah, I like he. He was good. He, he was good. He's not my favorite. I mean, Connery will always be my favorite. Uh, <laughs> they, they say you know whoever you saw first in the theater is often your favorite. Uh, well, I saw Connery first, so he'll always be. I always say you know there's Sean Connery and then there's everybody else. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but I like mean, I said. I- Dalton, you know, was the most accurate to the novels, and I really liked Dalton. He only he, made he, two films. He made two films only, yeah. Yeah. No, but, um, so that that first Daniel Craig, uh, that was uh, Casino Royale. Yeah, that was fantastic. Was that, that was, Ian Fleming? Book? Yeah, that was based on Fleming's first. His first book was Casino Royale, and it was very that movie. Although it's updated to the time, it's very faithful to the book. Uh, they added the whole first third. That was all new stuff, but all the stuff starting in the casino um, is right out of the book. Although they're playing Baccarat in the book and not Texas Hold'em. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, like, a lot of the early movies are are kind of faithful to the books, but they really started veering away toward the novel. They just started using the titles 
and maybe some character names mm-hmm. and locations, you know, but they would change the plot a lot. So when you were doing those uh, novelizations, um, did you sort of like also have to remove some of the movie stuff to make it more feel like a novel and a series of novels? Not necessarily. Um, I kind of, I suppose I, I brought in more of the literary traits, the, the things that you expected from the literary character. Uh, I brought those into the things that you wouldn't know in the movie. Um, you know, some background stuff about, you know, where he came from and, you know, his likes and dislikes, you know, how he likes his martini. Well, you, we kind of know how he likes his martini, but uh, certain things like that, uh, certain references, little, you know, in, insider stuff, you know, people who had read the books, you know, would recognize stuff like that. Um, I mean, I kind of kept when I was writing the books. Uh, they were they did take place in the contemporary time of when I was writing them. They were in, took place in the 90s. Uh, so, you know, my bond fit in with those novelizations. Um, some of the recent novelists that they've hired uh, have set their bond stories back in the 60s. Um, so, you know, that would have been more dif- difficult in fact when i first started writing the bond books we had a talk about that we said well what do we do do we continue like john gardner was doing because he was writing in the 80s and set the stories in the 80s and early 90s do i continue doing that or should we maybe go back to the 50s or the 60s and uh do that and they ultimately decided let's stay in sync with the movies you know so that's what we did um you know my books uh i tried my best to use fleming's character you know with vices intact but the at that time the fleming estate wanted uh the books to reflect the movies a little more to gain a, a wider audience so there was more humor maybe in my books more action mm-hmm. uh but i tried to keep the bond character the same mm-hmm Are you, are you still reading all the books that are coming out? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, there was a brand new one that was just published uh, on Thursday uh, for the coronation of the king. It's called On His Majesty's Secret Service. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I'm they're saying that I, I, I'm waiting for that to get to me in the mail. So I'll read that. So is, is there sort of like a... Uh, there, there is no, how should I say, like common timeline for Bond or like- well, that gets that gets complicated since he's you know if if Fleming's Bond would now be, I don't know, a hundred, exactly. <laughs> you know, something like that. Uh, you know, he was born in nineteen twenty or nineteen twenty one. You know, depending. Even Fleming kind of played with his his uh, early background throughout his books. Um, so uh it's kind of like when you look at other characters like i don't know um superman or or batman you kind of take him intact from the decade he was created in and plop him you know into the new decade unchanged 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's just, you just kind of go on. You don't even mention, uh, you know, you might say, oh, well, he's a little older and wiser, but, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> you see, in, in Germany, we have a, a phenomenon for like a radio play, uh, a series of radio plays that started in 1979 or so. And it was 11-year-olds uh, that started, you know, the three guys, the main characters, three 11-year-old boys. And now, uh, like 45 years later, they are still, it's still like the 55-year-old guys. <laughs> yeah. The 11, the, the teenagers' voices, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. They're like 200, 220 episodes or something. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I, I think it's sort of like it only, it only works if there's such a strong, as you say, cultural, if it's such a strong cultural phenomenon that you can sort of like, that people don't don't mind right right like, you know I mean, there's there's plenty of fans that that are obsessed with with pigeonholing you know the, the timeline trying to make sense of a timeline you know and it just doesn't make sense um i kind of look at it that each bond author um their series of books is is a separate universe for bond you know you know we all we, we each draw from Fleming you know we use Fleming as the source and everything but like my universe for Bond is different from John Gardner's is different from Anthony Horowitz who just did his own books um and you know as long as you kind of keep that in mind you can read each author's books separately and enjoy them mm -hmm. as they are mm -hmm. so um your, your musical side so, so is that, how, how active are you still as, like, uh, do you still play? Well, I was playing quite heavily up until about two years ago. Um, I developed lateral epicondylitis in both arms. Uh, that's tennis elbow mm -hmm. in both arms. And uh, it just will not go away. I've tried everything. We've done physical therapy. We've done cortisone shots. We've done acupuncture. We've done dry needling. <laughs> I've done everything but surgery, um, and uh, it has prevented me from playing. I can still type, but I have to type in spurts and take a lot of breaks. Um, if I start playing the piano, it gets very painful. So I've kind of curtailed my piano playing and for the last two years, which is a real drag. Uh, it, it's not quite what happened to Keith Emerson. You know, uh, he had some kind of condition that affected his fingers yeah. Um, yeah. and it got to where he couldn't play. And you know what happened, you know, what happened to Keith? Um, it, yeah. He went into despair. Um, but yeah, up until two years ago, I was, I was playing a lot. Uh, in fact, during the first year of the pandemic, I uploaded 100 videos of me playing the piano at home, Com my own compositions, favorite rock and roll pieces, movie music. Um, it was kind of a goal, I said. I just said, okay, I'm going to, since I'm stuck at home in a lockdown, you know, I'm going to upload 100 videos. And I did it. And that's probably what gave me <laughs> a tennis <Probably>. open. <laughs> yeah, it, it probably did. Because uh, I was uh, really... So those are up on, on the YouTube channel or something? Yeah, I have, a, I have a YouTube channel. Yeah, Raymond Benson. Yeah. 
Uh, and so, yeah, you can see them. Uh, I have a lot of, I have some Mike Oldfield up there. I have, uh, you know, crazy stuff. I have stuff, you, you know, very eclectic, you know, movie music, John Barry, Bacharach, Bernard Herman. Um, uh, I've got uh, Jethro Tull. I've got all kinds of stuff. Robert, get- Robert Wyatt. I've got Robert Wyatt, you know, things like that. Uh, I love Robert Wyatt. Oh, me too. Hey, so uh, speaking of Oldfield, um, you know, like in a few weeks, it's the 50th anniversary of Tubular Bells and right. 40th anniversary of me buying my the very first record I bought, which was Crisis by Oldfield. Oh, my. All right. <laughs> well, that's, I love that one. Um, you know, he, he says he's retiring. Yeah. Yeah. He's not going to record anymore he's not going to tour he's well, he hadn't been touring much at all but he's not going to record anymore yeah uh there's a there's a he's they're releasing a new re, a new version of tubular bells the original but it's going to have a couple of extra pieces on it's got an eight a new eight minute piece of the beginning of tubular bells four that he recorded yeah and he quit he just said i'm not going to finish it have you have you heard have you heard the, I, have not, the I haven't heard it yet I have heard um, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's okay. it, it sounds like a demo. I think yeah. I think it could have been good, you know. Yeah. Like I I don't think anybody should critique it for you know because it's a demo, right? Uh, it I don't know. Like I, what what do you think happened to him over the years? Do you have any any theory? You know, he was a very private guy. I, you know, I've read his biography. I've read other books about him and stuff. And you still can't really get a handle on him unless you knew him personally. Um, I know that uh, he was very, very shy, very withdrawn. Um, and he, you know, he took that uh, that course in the late seventies that kind of kind of got him out and touring and stuff. Yeah. Um, I hate to say, I, I, I don't know. I'm just speculating here, but I wonder if he was on the, uh, I wonder if he's on the spectrum. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't know. He, um, Probably. I mean, that's not, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Um, I've, I've liked pretty much everything he's done. I know you and I talked that there was a period where you kind of lost interest or something, but uh, I, I own everything he's, he's ever recorded. He's one of my five favorite, musicians um and for me uh, is for me is number one. Oh, yeah certainly my number one that's no yeah. i mean you know i loved it when he started doing pop songs in the 80s you know i thought maggie riley's voice was just incredible i fell in love with her um uh i liked his 90s work i i liked his last album return to amadon i thought that was really good you know so i, I totally agree it's to me it's just you know like people don't sometimes don't understand like if you are sort of an artist or you could say like in his case even sort of like just imagine like at age 20 to release an album like tubular bells so Mm -hmm. all the music was in him already and and sort of like the weight that then that can potentially create on your shoulders and he kept going you know he kept Mm -hmm. it's not that he just was was wasn't a one hit wonder or you know like it really he kept going and i think that's just 
so amazing at at some point in time like you know i would say give give the guy a break also you know like if you don't if you just don't want want to make music anymore and he's 69 now i guess almost mm -hmm. almost 70 right mm -hmm. it's it's really it's really um for me i always i i love that about about um art in general or artists that you can follow their the biography so and I see each work as like part of uh, as a result of not just the person, not just the artist, but also the the conditions, right? Mm -hmm. And and for me, uh, you know, because I eventually became an artist myself, musician artist myself, um, it was always very uh, educational to to stay with another artist that I could kind of like okay, that there's something that maybe that happened to him or, you know, like maybe he did that because somebody made him to or, or made a comment or maybe he had the idea, like it, it kind of comes out in his book a little bit where he says like that sometimes a whole album comes from just one simple idea. Mm -hmm. Like when he said that, you know, Moonlight Shadow comes from the idea of strumming the guitar hard, for mm -hmm. example, which is kind of funny in a way, that song. You yeah. Know, with that. yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I, I love following biographies, you know, and that's also why why I was so um, I'm so fascinated by your story with Bond because it's uh -huh. a similar thing. You kind of like stick with your love for your whole lifetime. It's not that at some point you start considering it like a a, a guilty pleasure or something. With you know what happens to a lot of people that they sort of like lose track of the things that they loved as children or as uh, when they were growing up. And I think we are we have the the luck to kind of like, you know, like stay in touch with, you know, also the people that make the art and not just, you know what I mean? Like it's right. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, my original novels um, that just come from me, they have a lot of me in them. They have a lot of my biography and a lot of my thoughts and philosophies and things, you know. And people who know me and they read my books, they they go, yeah. Yeah, I, I I recognize that, you know. Uh, so, but I think every writer does that. I'm yes. sure, you know. Uh, yes, and and that's like just to to, to connect that to Oldfield again, like when yeah. when he released Man on the Rocks. Yeah. Right, and I I was listening to the lyrics and sort of like it really touched me deeply what he was saying because. It felt to me as if every single word he was writing, I had some sort of idea where those words come from, uh -huh. and 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 that sort of I I I love that about good art. Let's say when the when the person truly or the history of this of the person truly speaks through through his art or her art, you know, and and that's why I'm 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 really really very interested in uh, in reading something that is yours. Like where the characters are yours, and uh, uh, well, you should you should read the the most recent one then, the the Mad Mad Murders of Marigold Way, because there's it takes place on my street. <laughs> <laughs> Although I've I've disguised the name, I, I made it fictional. You know, this town, the town and the street, but it's it it, it 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 I wrote it during the first summer of the pandemic, and it takes place then as well when people are. Locked down, they're scared, they're paranoid, and it's really a comedy. It's a black comedy. It's like a Coen Brothers movie. Okay. So. Wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> wow, man, this is this is such a it's such an honor 
to be talking with you, really. Oh, I, I appreciate it. I have such respect for you. Uh, I'm, I was amazed that you even wanted to talk, you know, have a, me on your show. So, um, I mean, so, gosh. So, so I, I mean, like, this is a stupid question, but like in, in your, in the James Bond world, are you a celebrity? Yes. Uh, I, I would suppose so. Uh, you know, not as big as say, you know, uh, Pierce Brosnan <laughs> or somebody like that, you know, I mean, the, the, you know, the film, the movie people certainly are kind of at a higher level than the literary people, but the, uh, the literary people have their own kind of following. Uh, there are Bond fans. Okay. You know, Bond fans are like Batman fans or Buffy fans or Star Wars fans, you know, they're all nuts. Uh, and I'm one of them, you know, so uh, I'm nuts too. But there are fans who just love the movies and they don't know anything about the books, you know. There are fans of just the books and they, yeah, they tolerate the movies. There are fans that love both, you know, and uh, some are very obsessive and, you know, um, very protective of what they think Bond is, you know. <laughs> just like, you know, uh, all these franchises, these inner pop culture franchises, the fans can be uh, very demanding. Um, so, yeah, but I am. Um, I'm, in fact, I'm appearing at a uh, at a Comic-Con in July in Reno, Nevada in July, um, where I'll be signing stuff. And um, there's a possibility of a, of a London appearance coming up in the fall. So. I can't really say much about that yet, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so great, so great. And um, so, um, do you have plans for other projects already? Or are, are you already working on something? I am. Um, I spent actually the last year. Uh, I was doing a ghostwriting project, and. For those of you in podcast land don't know what ghostwriting is, that's uh, when you write under a pseudonym or you somebody has hired you to write their book, you know, and your name doesn't get on it, but you get paid to do it. Um, I did this for a year um, and it was very nice. Um, it was a, a, an interesting experience and it was worth my time. I'll put it that way. Um, so did you get an outline or did you talk to the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that. And so I think I'm going to do a, a second project uh, because it's worth my time. If you get yeah, my meaning. I understand. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm just taking it as I go. You know, the, the, the whole arm thing has curtailed a lot of my activities but um um you know i'm getting up there i'm a, i'm pushing 70 <laughs> so. so is is uh maybe a stupid question is dictating an option for you not really i can't really write that way um i am so used to typing a sentence and maybe editing as i type it you know backing up changing it you know Dictating, you've got to be able to command, you know, oh, back up, delete that, change that, you know, yeah. and that takes up, that interrupts the flow, it interrupts yeah. your thought process. The And for me, you know, pace is very, very important. And I get the pace of a book by the writing, by the sweep of writing. Um, I write a first draft of a, the complete novel before I go back and correct anything. And I and actually, Ian Fleming did that. Um, 
uh, he would write that first draft to get the the pace of the novel so that it's a page turner you know mm-hmm. um then once you're finished with that first draft then you go back and start revising rewriting doing what you need to do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so um if if that's not too much to ask like how do you get a ghostwriter gig through my agent okay yeah the the agent calls up and says hey somebody uh i've met this person that's looking for a writer that's how it happens it's all networking and who you know and being you know i'm going to a writer's conference uh in new york at the end of the month uh called thriller fest Mm-hmm. And all the big names go to it and publishers go to it and agents go to it. And I go there pretty much to everyone every year. Um, it's a great conference um, and there's panels and stuff like that, but it's, it's great for networking. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, you know, that's the, the big attractive part of it. So. So it is the publishing business still. It's as crazy. It's as crazy no. as the music, it's uh, the music okay. business. Yeah, all all it seems like all the arts, um, the movie business, the theater business, you know, the fine art business, uh, music business, publishing, it, it's all crazy. <laughs> it's like you know, if you're you know when you're a kid and you say, "Well, I want to be a musician when I grow up," you know, it's like. Okay, that's great, but man, be sure to have a good plan B, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, my son my son's a musician and he's a professional musician. He lives in LA and uh uh he's making a living. He's doing very well. Um, you know, we support we supported what he wanted to do. We just said, you know, we my wife was also in theater, so we knew, you know, if you're going to be an artist, It can be a hard life at times, you know, you got to be able to, uh, at the beginning, especially live at a level that, you know, is kind of lower than what you want to be. Um, you know, you live, uh, in shabby apartments and, you know, so on, um, pinching pennies and stuff like that until you get, you know, hopefully you can get a little bit of success and, you know, you might have a day job you got to do and uh, work on the weekend, do your, what you love on the weekends and at night. And then, you know, um, so, tell, tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. It's nothing you don't know. Probably. I mean, I had a day job all through the, you know, eighties and, and half of the nineties. So, Part of that was, though, uh, a computer game job. My day job was writing computer games, so that was kind of creative. Uh, that was very lucky. <laughs> that's that's super cool. Like for me, what is what is interesting? Um, um, as as I kind of like go through the process of my career, realizing, like looking back in hindsight, how like I you know I can look at the loose ends now. Let's say. And I, by looking at those, I can see that even though I sort of like in one some one way or another, I have a career and I have success, okay? But I can see by looking at the loose ends, what I was not capable of taking care of. Oh, I know, I, and, I totally know what you mean. And, and also, 
as you get older, you're, you're younger than me. Uh, you will look back and go, man, I saw that little fork in the road that I took. I probably should have gone that way, you know, or something like that. Uh, or, you know, oh, if I'd only done it this way differently or, you know, you know, you make mistakes and you learn from them and you look back on them and then maybe you write about them. Who knows? So, you know, last last year I um, was encouraged by a friend to start writing. And uh, I, th I th think it was a good idea. I only wrote like maybe three paragraphs. So don't don't laugh. But I was, it was really, <laughs> and I could have, I could have done more. It's just that life got in the way again for me. But there was a point last year where I really, really felt like I could do it. And I had sort of like, as you were saying before, like I had some formal ideas, which then sort of like, kind of, it was like a back and forth. Okay, what, what happens if I do this? And then I had an idea about the story. And it it was it was really nice, and I I really think I want to do it again. Not not you know as some you know, I don't want to read it to anybody or you know, uh, but I think it's a it's a very nice thing. And you know I'm I'm, I'm lefty, I'm left-handed. I never really properly learned to write because I wasn't you know nobody was helping me at school. I and we had to write with uh, like wet ink. I don't know how you how you call that. You know what I mean. Uh, and, and so I was always sort of like physically dis discouraged from writing. And huh. then once, once like keyboards and computers came along, like I started writing emails and stuff, but I was never thinking of like writing a story or something. Yeah. Well, my penmanship, you know, hand cursive penmanship is, it's like chicken scratching. You can't even... <laughs> it's hard for me to decipher it you know so so you know i've always even when i was a kid i would hunt and peck on a typewriter you know and um and i took typing in high school and became and got very good at it i think it was because of my piano playing i became a very fast typist so mm -hmm. that was, helped me a lot okay and did you do you have a a, a nice beautiful signature when people ask you for your autograph yeah, it's. I mean, I it's it's kind of bold and out, you know, big. Uh, so yeah, I, I do it with a flourish. Sure, why not? You know. <laughs> hey, thank you, Raymond. This was wonderful. Well, thank you for having me. I hope to see you again soon when you come through town. Or yes, uh, I, I've always wanted to come to Germany. I'm, I've been to Hamburg, but that's the only place in Germany I've been. Come, come to Berlin. This is. Oh, no, I'd love to see Berlin. I really, I really would. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, All right. See you soon and stay in touch. Okay. Yep. Thanks. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye, Raymond. Bye. -bye.